Tonight's lesson is number 25 of our Three Angels series, and this is a very important and a very powerful message in Bible prophecy. It's a message that is not often talked about, but it is the message of the discovery of the Three Angels' messages. The Bible actually outlines for us when in particular these messages were going to be launched to the world. And so we're going to discover God's plan from the get-go with His last day messages. And it's a really a, a pulling together of some of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible. And we've, we've built a lot of background through this series that allows us to, to more easily, more readily understand fully the context of this prophetic message. It's a message that a lot of preachers don't necessarily preach on, but mostly it's because people don't understand it. They don't understand the real impact of this prophecy. Yet, if you do understand the, the three angels' messages as we've been looking through them, then it will be fairly easy to understand what the message is referring to. And so, we're going to be looking at that here tonight. Before we jump into God's Word, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much this evening for your love, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your truth, for your word. And we pray that you will lead us and guide us by your blessed spirit tonight as we open up the words of life. May we know your will for our lives and may we follow your counsel as it is seen in the prophecies. We thank you so much for this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question I have for us tonight to think about just briefly is, have you ever been greatly disappointed because you were wrong about something? And what was that like? Anyone here ever go through a great disappointment in your life or experience at some point, or you maybe made a miscalculation or you misunderstood something, you had maybe the wrong expectations about something? Yes. I'm sure somehow we can relate to different situations in life where we have had some disappointment. And we're going to learn prophetically and historically about an incredible great disappointment that we see from, from the Bible and from history. In fact, we'll look at a couple of those here tonight that are all related. And the second question is, can we learn from our disappointments and move on to a greater success in the future? The great successes. Yes, absolutely. And that is the, that is the great news that we don't have to let things end in disappointment, but we can move on from those experiences to much greater futures. Very often times that has been the case, that there was not success before there was much failure. We all, know, we all have heard the story of the light bulb, how it took a lot of failures before finally success. And it is, it is true, I believe, in most situations in life. That, that oftentimes we will face disappointments and challenges, but it is those who press through, it is those who press through those in faith that will find the greater success in the future. And so that's what we want to discover tonight. And we want to, we want to look at the words of Jesus where he was speaking to his disciples and he explained to them clearly what was going to happen to him on the cross. We find this in Matthew 20, verse 17 through 19 in our New Testament. Matthew 20, verse 17 through 19. And it says here, 
And Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. So you notice the words of Jesus here. Did Jesus tell his disciples in very clear words what was going to happen to him in the near future? Very clear. Very clear, right? He, he said that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed, and he would be condemned to death. That's very clear language. He was not mincing words there. Very clear. And he also says in verse 19 that they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify him. And the third day he will rise again. So resurrection. There was hope. There was hope beyond the cross. And, and Jesus just very clearly laid that out for his disciples. And yet, did the disciples correctly understand his words? Let's take a look at Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, and we look there at verse 19. Luke 24, what does it say in verse 19? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And you can read 20 and 21 as well. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Okay, so here were the disciples. Now they're on the third day. In fact, the day that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to rise to life. And here they are talking, and they're walking along to Emmaus, and they're sad. Verse 17 tells us that they were sad. So they were greatly disappointed because what happened to Jesus was not what they were hoping to see. It was not what they were really expecting, even though Jesus told them clearly what would happen. And the Bible goes on to, you know, kind of describe this dialogue that they had. And in verse 25, this is what Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, Jesus pointed them to the prophetic message. And their great disappointment was built on a faulty misunderstanding of the prophetic message. Jesus understood the message correctly, and Jesus explained it to them exactly, but somehow they missed it. They missed it. How likely is it that a believer, even today, could miss the message that Jesus wants to communicate? Could miss the activities that Jesus is up to? And could miss the message of the prophecies? It's very possible. It happened in the first century. To, in fact, the closest followers of Jesus, who, who walked with him for three and a half years. They picked up a number of things from Jesus. They remembered a number of his words, but they did not understand all of his words because some of his words did not align with what they personally believed or held to be true. Their knowledge, their belief needed some tweaking, needed some change. 
And it was only the words of Jesus that would clarify that. And in fact, this great disappointment that drove them to search more and, and start to understand, okay, wait a second, we went totally wrong here. And so after their great disappointment, they were able to move forward to much greater things. The Bible says they preached the gospel and the whole world was turned upside down by the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And here we are today, believers who believe the message that these guys told the world about Jesus. So if they had given up at that great disappointment and said, well, we were all wrong and Jesus is not really the Messiah, well, they would have lost the faith and been lost, right? They would have lost the faith and been lost. So God wants us to, to understand the message. They had a message to proclaim, and it was that of a crucified and risen Savior. The whole world needed to know this truth. So with that background in mind, I want us to go to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. We're going to look at the prophecy there in Daniel, chapter 12. That's the last chapter in the book of Daniel. We're going to look there at verse 4. If somebody has it, they can read it for us. All right, thank you very much. So the Bible tells us that specifically the book of Daniel was to be sealed up. And you notice in verse 4 that it says, seal the book even to the time of the end. In other words, there's a time when this message of Daniel should be much more clear in history. Seal it up until the time of the end. So after that time of the end, it should be opened. It's first sealed and then it should be opened. We also find here that some things in the book of Daniel were understood very readily, very easily, even in those days, but other things were not as well understood. So, for example, Daniel understood a number of the different nations that were mentioned in the prophecies given to him. He understood that. But there were some elements in particular that he did not understand well, and in fact, the Bible tells us that those things were sealed up until the time of the end. And so we're going to look at some of those specific references, but I want to unpack this line of thinking in Daniel 12 just a little bit more before we go there. In verse 4, it continues to say, And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So you notice that many will run to and fro, knowledge shall be increased. Now, this has a very direct scriptural application, and it also has a broader uh, global application. And we can look at that just, just briefly. We'll look at each one. The first one is that oftentimes in the prophets, we find the phrase running to and fro being mentioned uh, as a reference to comparing what God's Word says, comparing the prophets with the prophets, to and fro, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So that is a phrase that is also used in the scriptures in that way. And it says that knowledge will be increased. So the Bible is telling us that especially the knowledge of the scriptures, the knowledge of the prophecies would be increasing towards the end of time. That people living in the time of the end, living in the last days, would understand the prophecies more clearly than, for example, people living in Daniel's day. Because we have a lot more vantage point of history, we've been through a lot more things and we see the fulfillments and we have the knowledge of the ages to help us, you know, as we study, right? 
Um, again, the ultimate authority is not what humans say about it, but the ultimate authority is what God's Word says about God's Word. But we do have a great vantage point to be able to look back and understand things more clearly. So it says that knowledge will increase. Now that's the specific knowledge of the prophecies that would increase. There's also the knowledge of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is very central to all the prophecies. Okay? We cannot preach Bible prophecy without Jesus Christ being right at the heart and center of it. The book of Revelation is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it points out the gospel message. So the prophecies are very central, and that tells us that the message of the gospel would increase much more to the very end of the world. That, that all the people in the last days, somehow they're going to hear the message that Jesus Christ is trying to get to the world. So the knowledge of the gospel would increase. But the other sense is in the general sense of knowledge. That people would run to and fro from place to place. The phrase can also be used that way. So people would run from one place to another. In other words, traveling would be easier. Communication would be easier. And knowledge would increase exponentially. Knowledge would grow exponentially. So we can expect that in the last days of history, this kind of knowledge would be perhaps jumping off the charts. It says it would increase. Knowledge would increase. Knowledge of the prophetic message of the gospel and even general knowledge and travel lines um, going here and there would increase in the last days of earth's history. And we certainly see a great fulfillment of that if you consider, uh, for example, that up until the 1800s, the fastest way people would get around was on the back of a horse. That's a lot of years that people were traveling on horses. And then here suddenly we have in these last days the development of the automobile engine. And then we have the development of airplanes in the 1900s. And we have a lot of things developing, including the phone lines and then long distance phone lines and now cell phones and the internet. And we can communicate all around the world in, in just fractions of a second. In real time, you can talk to somebody on the other side of the planet. It's incredible when you think about how knowledge has increased in these last days. And all of this was prophesied in the book of Daniel, also Revelation, and really throughout Scripture. We see in the message of the prophets that this would happen. It's very clear if you look at the, the trajectory of the world and how things would end up in the last days. Now, the next question that we have to settle is, when precisely is the time of the end? Notice the phrase is not the end of time, like, like time is all gone, time is all over, but it's the time of the end. In other words, you're living in a period of time just before the end of the world. This is described by the verse here. The question is specifically, when is the time of the end? And Daniel asks about that in verse 5. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. Notice verse 6. Uh, one said to the man clothed in linen, which is upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? So, in the vision, there are two persons communicating, and they're asking, How long? will it be to the end of these wonders? In other words, when will the time of the end be? How far away is that? How long? How long will it be? And so Daniel hears this in the vision, but he also asks the same question as we, as we see as we look along this passage here. Notice verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven. 
and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, that it shall be for a time and times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. In other words, you'll reach the fulfillment of that prophecy from verse 4. You'll reach the time of the end. And so, verse 7 gives us a very clear reference, that it will be for a time and times and half time. And that during that time, there's a scattering of God's people. There's a persecuting of God's people. Now, we simply have to go back to the prophecies we've already been looking at in our series to realize that that's the, the 1260 years of prophecy that's mentioned multiple times. And the persecuting power, the little horn of Daniel 7.25, persecutes for a time, times and half time. We know that they, they take out the last of those three horns in Daniel 7 in the year 538. This allows them to begin their reign of 1260 years, which closed up in 1798. And since the Bible gives us that information and we can look at it historically and verify the details of the prophecy, then we're able to clearly know that, ah, the time of the end begins from 1798, from the time when the papacy receives her deadly wound, that we're now living in the time of the end. We're living in the last days of Earth's history since the year 1798. It's pretty amazing that, that God allows us to see that. And so he's showing us that, in fact, these prophecies would be opening up m much more in this time just after 1798. Well, two more years and it would already be 1800. So the 1800s, again, like we just talked about, a lot of explosion of general knowledge, um, a lot of mass production of Bibles and the gospel going out to the world that happened in that time, around 1798 and just beyond. And a great increase in the knowledge of the prophecies occurred at that time. Particular prophecies, even about Daniel, that had long been sealed up, the Bible says they will be opened up at the time of the end. So, in the 1800s, after 1798, we would expect the prophecies in Daniel, especially those ones which were sealed up, to be now opened. That's really incredible when you think about it. So, God is telling us that, hey, people are going to understand like powerful, incredible prophetic messages from Daniel and Revelation from the 1800s moving forward. And was there a great movement at that time? Oh yes, there was a great movement to understand Bible prophecy. And we're going to come back to that and look at it here in more detail as we continue in this particular lesson. But notice here a couple things. In verse 8, Daniel says, I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Okay. Now there's more to it in this chapter, um, but we have the main point, the main point of the chapter. There's a couple more prophetic periods mentioned in verse 11 and 12. We just don't have time to, to delve into those here tonight. So we'll save them for, for later for some question and answer. All right, but, um, but basically we have the main prophet, prophetic period, the 1260, ending in 1798. That begins the time of the end. So we're now living in the time of the end since that year in history. The prophecies should be greatly opened up to our discovery, to our knowledge. Now, with that in mind, I want to go back to Daniel chapter 8 because there's an important part of the prophe prophecy here which 
tells us something that was going to be opened up in the last days of history. So let's take a look at Daniel 8, 14 through 17. Who can read that passage for us? He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Eli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Okay, thank you very much. So, Daniel was given a vision, and it was mentioned to him about a period of 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be cleansed, is the word we have in the King James and a lot of other versions. Um, if you look at the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, they have the word katharizomai, which is connected with catharsis, which is essentially cleansing. So, um, it, the, the idea of cleansing is very important. I think that you can get that shade of meaning that's in the version you're reading tonight. Um, I think, what was it, reconsecrated? Mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can possibly get that shade of meaning in there. Yeah, yeah, cleansed. Cleansed is the best, the best word, the best understanding. And there's a lot of points from Revelation, from Hebrews, from Leviticus, and elsewhere where we can understand that rendering. Um, and again, it's pretty clear here in a lot of versions as well. So, that prophetic period, okay, it was given to him, and Daniel was asking about it, he was wondering about it, and the Bible says that there was a voice from between the banks of the Uli in verse 16, and it says, it said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision, okay? So he was supposed to understand in particular the 2300 day vision, the 2300 evenings and mornings. And it tells us here in verse 17 that he came near where I stood and when he came I was afraid and fell upon my face and he said unto me, understand, O son of man, for at the what? The time of the end, right? At the time of the end shall be the vision. In other words, the 2300 day vision in particular, refers to events at the time of the end. It refers to events way down in the future. When Daniel closed his prophetic book in chapter 12, we've just read how a lot of these things referred to the time of the end. In fact, it would be sealed up until the time of the end, and then it would be known, and that we know that that's after 1798. So we know the 2300 refers to things during the time of the end. Now, the next point of this is verse 26 and 27 of Daniel 8. It says this, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Now when it says the vision of the evening and the morning, it's referring to the 2300 evenings and mornings. Literally, that is the expression in the Hebrew where some Bibles like the King James says 2300 days in verse 14. Literally, it's 2300 evenings and mornings. And an evening and a morning is a day. You read Genesis chapter 1, the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, the third day, and so forth. And so that, that is the Hebrew biblical understanding of a day. And so you have 2300 evenings and mornings. He says, this vision is true, wherefore shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I arose and did the king's business. I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. 
So he was told, Daniel, seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. It will be at the time of the end. So in particular, the 2300-day vision refers to things after 1798, down in the time of the end, and as a matter of fact, it would be sealed up and not fully understood until after 1798. Isn't that incredible? Yes. Because when we look at things historically, we realize that Christians began to clearly understand this prophecy in the early 1800s, and not really before. They had some ideas about it, but the most clear understanding of it came in the 1800s, the early 1800s. William Miller, who was a Baptist farmer, we've talked about him already, he began studying the prophecies, and he understood this prophetic message. He started making connections, and there were others who were thinking about it, even writing about it in commentaries, like the one that was published by Adam Clark in, in 1825. He had written about this prophecy. He did not he did not understand the exact starting time of it, but he knew it was referring to last day events. And, and so a lot of people were beginning to study and understand this prophetic time period, and that was right down in the 1800s that that was taking place. So all of this had been prophesied before. Yeah. Um, so it's very specifically an end time Bible prophecy that would only be understood in the last days of, of history. And so William Miller in 1818 is when he understood this prophecy. And then he began to proclaim it in the 1840s. And he initially believed that it was supposed to end in 1843. And then they discovered there was an error because somebody had forgotten there's no zero year on the calendar. And so it goes from one to one, from the BC to the AD, uh, you know, yearly calendar. And they realized, aha, it's going to be in the fall of 1844 that this prophetic period will reach its close. So he understood that, and they began to proclaim that. But they misunderstood the event that was going to take place because it mentioned the cleansing of the sanctuary. And a lot of people in those days thought that that was going to be the cleansing of the earth. As a matter of fact, I just mentioned Adam Clark's Bible commentary. It was published in the year 1825. You go back and you look at his commentary. He follows out this prophetic period using the day-for-year principle, 2300 years, but he starts it at the wrong time and he ends up at around 1966. And his understanding of the cleansing of the sanctuary, he specifically says it is, he says that will be the cleansing of the earth by fire when Jesus comes again. So a lot of Christians thought, and that, uh, by the way, Adam Clark was coming from the British Methodist background or Christian tradition. Okay, so you have a lot of believers from different churches who are all studying these prophecies. He had an understanding, but he had a wrong understanding of the event. And Clark was a little bit off on his numbers, too, for when it was supposed to expire. But William Miller got the, got the numbers right. He misunderstood the event, though. Those Christians in the 1800s, they misunderstood exactly the event that was supposed to take place in the year 1844. And they came to a great disappointment because of that. But then later they say, well, wait a second, let's study this more because it seems that the calculations are right. What about the event? Have we misunderstood the event? And suddenly they realized that that was in fact what happened. They had misunderstood the event that was going to take place. And so we're going to look at that more here in just a minute. But here's something that's really amazing. The book of Revelation, which was written 600 years later than Daniel, actually foretells when these prophetic things in the book of Daniel would open. As a matter of fact, it foretold 
what it would be like and how the experience would be when that prophetic passage was opened. So let's go to Revelation chapter 10. And this is the prophetic passage that I mentioned to you. A lot of people don't preach on today because frankly, a lot of people don't understand what it's even talking about. But if you, put, if you understand the three angels' messages, then you will very, very clearly understand what this passage is talking about. So Revelation chapter 10, and notice here, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And here's what the Bible says in chapter 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now, can somebody read for me verses 3 and 4? And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So you notice that there's some part of this where verses 3 and 4, and I'm going to come back and tackle verses 1 and 2, but in verses 3 and 4, it mentions that there were seven thunders that uttered their voices, and John records that he heard this, and he heard something very specific. In other words, those thunders gave a message to him. Oftentimes in Scripture, when you have thunders, it's connected with the voice of God. So, for example, God thundered from heaven at Mount Sinai, and the people heard the Ten Commandments. Another place, God said, this is my beloved son in the New Testament, and some people said it thundered. That's all they heard. But there was actually a message. Other, people's heard, other people heard the message. Okay? So there are seven thunders, and John hears them, and it communicates a very specific message, and he was about to write it down. He's like, okay, I'm on it. Seven thunders just made their sound. I'm going to write it down. And then he heard another voice that said, hey, John, don't write it down. It tells him right there in verse, in verse 4 that uh, he was told to seal up those things which the seven thunders had uttered and write them not. Don't write them. John, that part, that part is a secret. <laughs> in other words, what was being communicated in the seven thunders was a message that was particularly for John the prophet and no one else because he was not to write it down. He was not to communicate it to others. In other words, God gave the prophet John a view of these events. He gave him a view of greater detail that we don't have in the Bible. It's not written down in the Bible, but he was able to see it. God showed it to John. So John saw a lot of details. And someday I'd like to ask John, hey, John, what exactly did you see when those seven thunders uttered their voices? What exactly did God show you? I don't think it'll be a problem to say, you know, we'll leave that in God's hands, right? <laughs> but if he's allowed to talk about it, and I, I imagine that he would be, I'd like to hear exactly what he saw. Um, but from the best evidence we have in the chapter, it would make perfect sense that, in fact, the revelation given to John in those couple verses was referring to the events of, of what happened here, what transpired. That John was able to see more information regarding the subject at hand that we were not able to have written in Scripture. And yet we have enough that's given to us here so that we can understand what it's all talking about, what the rest of the passage is talking about. And that's the good news. We can understand that. So it, the Bible says here that there was a mighty angel that came down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head. 
and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. You know what's very interesting here? When you look at the language of verse 1, it very much compares to the description of Jesus that we find in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. The Bible mentions his legs like, like brass and fire, and it mentions the, the sun around his head, the sunshine, and it mentions the rainbow, um, face was as the sun. You know, so those are some of the characteristics that we actually see Jesus described that way. It's very interesting. Um, we do know that the whole revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it mentions here a mighty angel coming down, and there are a couple times where that, that reference is used towards Jesus. Not that he's an angel, because he's not, but the word angel in the Greek angelos is the same word that we often translate as messenger. And the Bible says that Jesus was the messenger of the covenant. He was the messenger of God's covenant. We find that in Malachi's prophecy in chapter 3. So um, it's very possible that it could be a direct revelation from the Lord to John. Um, either way, we know that ultimately the message comes from God himself, right? The whole revelation comes from the Father to Jesus to the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Jesus, and then to John, and then to the churches written down for us. So, um, pretty amazing. And then the Bible says here that in verse 2, he had in his hand a little book, all right? Notice that, there's a little book, okay? And it's open. That little book, it's open, but what is the normal position of books if you're storing them? It's closed, right? It's closed, yes. It's closed. And the other thing is that in the biblical books, when they would close a scroll, oftentimes they would seal it with something, especially if they wanted to, you know, preserve it for long ages and then at some point open it. So, for example, the book of Daniel, this idea of being sealed, and then it was opened. Now, what is also very helpful for us is in Revelation chapter 22, the Bible says that this book was never to be sealed. Revelation was never to be sealed. The book of Daniel we just read in chapter 12 was sealed until the time of the end. In particular, certain parts of it were sealed up so that we would not understand it until the time of the end. And isn't it interesting that in verses 3 and 4, John saw this message of the seven thunders and God said, oh, don't talk about that. Seal it up, John. Don't, don't tell anybody about that part. So there's just one little portion there that he says, hey, seal it up. Don't tell people. You just keep it in your mind. So we do see the reference here of the concept of sealing. We also see a book, a little book that's in his hand, and that book is open. So very clearly, that book, that little book, is, is unsealed. Now, we're going to see some other very important parallels here in this chapter that will leave no doubt in our minds what this is talking about. The Bible says in verse 2 that he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. This implies that the message is a universal message. It's for all people. The Bible mentions in Revelation 17, 15, that the waters which you saw where the horse hits are peoples and nations and languages or tongues is the other word that's used there. So you have lots of peoples and nations represented by the waters. In Daniel chapter 7, you have four great beasts and they all come up out of the sea. In Revelation 13, you have the first beast which comes up out of the sea. The second beast in Revelation 13 comes up out of the earth. We also find in Revelation chapter 12, there's the woman that we studied about last time, the pure woman in Revelation 12, and the Bible says that the dragon cast out waters from his mouth 
to persecute and harm the woman, but the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God, a wilderness or desolate place. And the Bible says, and the earth helped the woman. The earth helped the woman. In other words, the desolate place, the wilderness place, is what helped the woman, that she was out there away from the great crowds of people. The waters or the seas were representing multitudes of people and languages on which the harlot of Babylon set, and she was a persecuting power. So what, you, what we find in this is that the angel has one leg on the sea and one leg on the earth telling us that this is a universal message to reach all the groups of people, the nations and the languages, and to reach the more desolate places of the earth where there's not a lot of people, those jungle tribes out there around the planet in different places. The Bible tells us that this message is to go everywhere to the farthest corners of the earth. That is what we're seeing here when this angel uh, comes and presents this little book which is open. Now, incidentally, there's a parallel here with the book of Daniel because you notice in Daniel 12 when we were reading about the angel, he also had a foot on the river or the water and also the land. The bank, it talked about the banks of the river and it talked about the river. So there's suddenly a parallel here that we're starting to see with Daniel chapter 12, which is where we see the book of Daniel being sealed in Daniel chapter 12. And here we see a little book that gets opened. So you start to see some connections and we're going to see more connections, which are very important because God wants us again to understand the context. The context is what brings the, the true meaning, the true understanding of this vision. Now let's take a look at verse 5. The Bible says, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now, this is very unmistakable language. The angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the earth, he lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now, do you remember when the book of Daniel was sealed? In Daniel 12 and verse 7, the Bible says that the angel lifted up his hands, his right hand and his left hand, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time and then it would be sealed up until the time of the end, okay? We are now seeing in Revelation chapter 10 that the angel stands on the water, the sea, and the earth, okay, the sea and the earth, and it says that he lifts up his hand to heaven, and notice verse 6, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that it should be, uh, that there should be time no longer. Okay, some Bibles say delay no longer. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what I want to first notice is that again, the language of verse 6 and the language of verse 5 are exactly the same language that we find in Daniel chapter 12 with the sealing of the book, the little prophetic book of Daniel. And it's very important that we know, first of all, Daniel and Revelation are sister books of prophecy. They very much link together, Daniel and Revelation. They very much build off of each other. They use the same kind of apocalyptic language, symbolic descriptions of things. And there are only two chapters in the entire Bible where we see this kind of a, you know, swearing by the Creator and lifting up the hands and standing on the water and on the earth. Only two chapters in the Bible have all those elements. It's, it's this one here, chapter 10 of Revelation, and Daniel chapter 12. So we realize that there's, there's a, a perfect connection between the message of Daniel and the message of Revelation 10. The message of Daniel 12 and the message of Revelation 10. They completely go together. 
These are the only two chapters that have all of those elements in them, whereas 600 years before, you have that book of Daniel, and it's being sealed in the process, and now you have a little book that's being opened and given to the whole world in the last days. Is this making sense, right? So Revelation 10 is in fact describing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 12 and the opening of that little book that was sealed up until the time of the end. That means this, this vision of chapter 10 is referring to events after 1798, events that would happen in the 1800s are being referred to by the prophecy of Revelation chapter 10. All the prophetic context and even knowing when it would happen in history, it's all given to us when you understand the prophecies of Daniel and how they link with Revelation. So, what exactly is the message that gets conveyed as this is, as this is being given? Notice uh, in verse 6 that he said there would be time no longer. Now, a lot of Bibles have, have gone the route of using the word delay in their translation, and I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the best translation to use the word delay because the Greek word is the word chronos from where we get chronology or specifically time. Time is the, the Greek word chronos and so really the best understanding of that is time no longer. Now that's in a prophetic context, okay? So in other words, the time prophecies, the greatest time prophecies, in fact, the longest time prophecy from the book of Daniel that was specifically sealed up was the one that referred to the time of the end. It was the one in Daniel chapter 8, the 2300 evenings and mornings. That one was specifically sealed until the time of the end. It would expire or reach its close at the time of the end or, or in the time of the end, right? So... Uh, when it refers to that, that there will be chronos no longer, it's telling us that, hey, you're living in the time of the end, okay, the end times, the last days, and specifically, the 2300-year prophecy is reaching its close at this time. It's drawing up to its close, okay? And there's even more evidence than that, okay? And you thought that was a lot of evidence. There is, that's a lot of evidence, right? But there's more. The Bible continues to clarify the message here. So we're going to see this. It's very important to look at all the pieces. So chronos no longer. Those prophecies, those great time prophecies reaching down to the time of the end are drawing to their close. And that's the message of the book of Daniel when it is opened in history in the 1800s. Now notice verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. Now, this is a very important part of the prophecy. It says, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound. And you might ask yourself, well, where is that seventh angel mentioned? As a matter of fact, these, uh, this passage of Revelation 10 is found right in the midst of the, of the sequence of the seven trumpets of Revelation. It's found right in the midst of the sequence. As a matter of fact, we find that it's found in the sequence of where the sixth trumpet is. Okay, so we've already gone through trumpets one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, five and six are in chapter nine, and we have this, the seven seals being opened. Uh, it starts with chapter eight. Okay, so we have the opening of the seals, moving on down towards the end, and it says that the mystery of God should be finished. 
the language the, where it says the mystery of God, that is very often found throughout Scripture in reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystery of godliness, the mystery of how, how Christ can be in the world living among us as one of us, that the love of God would even compel him to do this for us, to come and give his own life, to humble himself, to become one of his own creatures. I mean, it's a mystery. And how God changes our hearts, how we can be born again, that's a mystery. And so the language is very often used throughout the New Testament letters in reference to the gospel, the mystery of God, the, the, the mystery of God's of godliness and of the gospel, the good news, how God saves a soul from sin. And so the Bible tells us here that the mystery of God should be finished in the days of the seventh angel, the voice of the seventh angel. And so then you might ask, well, well what is that message of the seventh angel? Well, let's just take a look at verse 15 of chapter 11, and this is what it says. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay? So you notice when the seventh angel sounds, what, is, what does he say? He says, first of all, there are great voices where? In heaven. So not great voices on the earth, but great voices in heaven are heard when the seventh angel sounds. In other words, there's a scene going on in heaven. Something is happening in heaven during the, the, the blowing of the seventh angel's trumpet. When he sounds, something happens in heaven, and there's a pronouncement made saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, the eternal kingdom of God is at hand. The eternal kingdom of God, it says the kingdoms of this world, they are become the kingdoms of Jesus Christ, that they belong now to Jesus Christ. And if you were to go back and study the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, and you look through the, the prophecy, it mentions those great nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, okay? I get them all? Yeah, then Rome. And then we have the ten horns representing the European nations. And then we have that little horn, right? And then the very next thing that Daniel sees is a heavenly judgment scene in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. And then in the verses 13 and 14, we see that one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. And it says there was given to him a kingdom and power and authority. He receives his kingdom. And the very next thing, he comes so that the saints can possess the kingdom. So he receives the kingdom in heaven. At the closing of that heavenly judgment event in Daniel chapter 7, he receives the kingdom. And when we see Jesus return in Revelation 19, he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords to reign. And so the Bible is showing us that right before Jesus comes in heaven, he receives, it's like a coronation event. He receives his kingdom. The heavenly judgment closes and Jesus comes for his children, for his people. Okay, so we're talking about the very final events before exit time. Jesus and the heavenly angels come to this earth to get his people. So that's the message of the seventh angel. And the Bible tells us something else very important here in this message. Notice verse 18 and 19. And the nations were angry. Revelation 11, verse 18. The nations were angry, and thy wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, 
and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So the message of the seventh angel is again a message of the nations being angry, lots of trouble going on in the world in the last days, and the Lord comes to serve out rewards, to give out rewards to his servants, the prophets, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's the message of verse 18, Revelation 11, which is all part of the seventh trumpet. The Lord receives his kingdom, and it is said, it's time for you to come and serve out rewards. The message here parallels the message that we find in Revelation 22, verses 11 and 12, where it says in Revelation 22 and verse 11, that he who is, is unjust, let him be unjust still. Right? You've heard that before. You can look at that for just a quick moment. And we have to get back here to finish up the rest of the passage. Okay, Revelation 22, 11 and 12. The Bible says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. There's a pronouncement made where it says, you know what? You're not going to change sides anymore. If you're, if you're just, then you will be just still. But if you're unjust, then you will be unjust still. And if you're holy, then you'll be holy still. There's no more changing sides. And notice in verse 12 of Revelation 22, And behold, I come quickly, and my what? Reward. My reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. So if you are sealed unjust and wicked with the mark of the beast, then you're getting the rewards of being lost. You're getting the rewards of the plagues and the wrath of God. If you are sealed with the seal of God, as Revelation chapter 7 tells us about, then you are righteous and holy still, and the Lord Jesus comes to reward you with a heavenly reward. That's the point. And so the seventh angel represents the closing of that heavenly judgment event. Jesus receives his kingdom. Those great voices praise him in heaven because the whole event happens there in heaven. The very next thing that we see described in prophecy is that Jesus comes out of heaven and he comes to this earth to gather his people and also reward the wicked for what they have done. Pretty powerful, isn't it? So we're looking at the very last day events, the very closing events. There's one more point to the seventh angel, verse 19. Revelation 11, verse 19. It says, And the temple of God was opened where? In heaven. In heaven, thank you. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there, was, there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So at that event, that final closing event, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and particularly the place seen there is the most holy place. The most holy place of the heavenly temple is seen where Jesus has been ministering on the behalfs of mankind. He's been ministering for us there all the way up until that point. And in the temple is seen the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testament, which contained the Ten Commandments or the Law of God. And it is shown to us that in heaven's temple, heaven's temple is the real temple, and the temple that Moses built and that Solomon built, these were merely a copy of what was shown to them from heaven. There's a temple in heaven, and there's the Ark of the Covenant, and inside of there is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are central to the covenant in the Old Testament, but they're central to the covenant in the New Testament because the Bible says that God wants to write His law in our heart and in our minds so that we love it and that we do it, that we know what He says and we do it because we love Him. And so it is seen that 
in the most holy place of the heavenly temple, God's law is very central. The Ark of the Covenant is there seen in heaven. Very, very important because in the judgment, there's a standard, there's a law. The Bible says that you will be judged by the law of liberty and that every single one of God's commandments is important. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. We also find that in Ecclesiastes 11 and no, is that right? Ecclesiastes 12, okay, it's the last chapter of Ecclesiastes and it's verse 13 and 14. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And the Bible even says that, that for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Okay, yeah. So the Bible says, fear God and keep His commandments. In other words, God's law, because God will bring everything into judgment. So we see that the, the law of God and the judgment event are connected in Scripture, throughout the Scriptures. It's connected. Old and New Testaments, it's connected. In the sanctuary, it's connected. It's always connected. The law and the gospel go together. You cannot have one without the other. The law and the gospel always go together. So this was the message of the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel. Now, it, from back to Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. So very specifically, the message of the seventh angel is the message of the closing events of that heavenly judgment work. The closing events are referenced in the seventh trumpet. And so in chapter 10, we're just getting a glimpse of that heavenly judgment and we're seeing right on down to the close of that event and to the Lord Jesus coming to serve out rewards. That's what this is all about. Revelation 10 is all about the very final things in the last days before Jesus comes. That's what Revelation 10 is about. And so then you notice now verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall be, or sorry, it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. So the angel warned him beforehand. He said, Look, I have this little book, it's in my hand, you're gonna take it and eat it. Now, how many of you guys would like to eat a book tonight? No, it's bitter. That won't taste very good. You might get a tummy ache from all that paper if you're eating a book. It's made from paper. But the Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. So the, the word of God is what we're supposed to eat, spiritually speaking. So to be nourished spiritually, we must eat the word of God. We must desire the word of God. So the book being given is, again, the word of God. It's the prophecies of Daniel that were sealed up, and now they're open. The angel says, look, John, I want you to take this book and eat it. It's going to be very, very sweet in your mouth, like honey, but it will be very bitter in your belly when the reality sinks in, when it gets down to the pit of your stomach. Ooh, it's going to be a bittersweet experience. You've probably had some bittersweet experiences before. Like the apostles in the first century, the disciples had a bittersweet experience at the cross. It was very bitter for them first, and then it got sweet when they realized, oh, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. <laughs> that made it a lot more sweet. But the Bible tells us that there will be a bittersweet experience. Notice verse 10. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. 
And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And here's the reality that we find in history. When the book of Daniel was opened up, when the prophecies were unsealed, when the 2300 day or year prophecy was understood in the 1800s, it was a very sweet message to all the people. It was known as the Advent Movement in history where all these Christians were coming from different backgrounds and different churches, but they all believed Jesus and the Bible. They were studying prophecy and they believed that Jesus was coming and they thought he was going to come in the year 1844. They had, they had calculated the time correctly, but they misunderstood the event that was going to take place. They thought that the cleansing of the sanctuary meant the cleansing of the earth by fire when Jesus comes. They had misunderstood the message. And it was so sweet. They were preaching the coming of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is coming. And they had a, a very sweet experience. They were on fire for the Lord. They were preaching the message. But the Bible says, look, you're going to have a bittersweet experience. It will be very sweet in your mouth like honey like gold, like deliciousness. But in your belly, it's going to be bitter. That experience will be bitter. And so the great disappointment, as a matter of fact, was actually prophesied here when the prophecies of Daniel would open up. In particular, the 2300-day prophecy would open up. There would be a bittersweet experience by the people who would eat the book, eat the prophetic message, and proclaim it. The Bible foretold that. Did the Bible also foretell the, the first century disappointment of Christ's disciples? It did. Because Jesus quoted to them the prophecy where it said, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He said, You're all going to leave me tonight. You don't know it yet, but you're going to leave because you have misunderstood the prophecies about Messiah in the first century. And the same is true about when this message would be unsealed, that people would be greatly disappointed and have a bitter experience, but sweet in the mouth like honey. And so the Advent movement, the discovery of the three angels' messages, was in fact prophesied when the, the message of Daniel would open up. The 2300-year prophecy would be understood by Christians living in the last days of Earth's history. But you know what? That's not the end of the story. That's not the end. Because verse 11 says this, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy... What? What's the next word? Verse 11, Revelation 10. Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You must prophesy again. In other words, get up. You had a bittersweet experience. You have a tummy ache. Your belly's hurting. Get up. The angel says, get up. Go and preach the message. You must prophesy again. Now that you've gone through the disappointment, now that you understand the message of truth, go to all the world and tell them. Go to all the peoples of the world and tell them the message. Prophesy again. And you know what message it is? Take a look at Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. This is what the Bible says. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Is that not the message that was given to John in chapter 10? And notice verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The 2300 year prophecy pointed to the cleansing of the sanctuary, which was a reference to the heavenly judgment described in Daniel chapter 7. But in Daniel chapter 8, it was giving us a time period for when that event would begin. 
From the year 1844, that event would begin. The three angels' messages would launch to all the world to worship God the Creator, to give Him glory, to fear Him, and to know for a fact that the hour of His judgment has come. Because exactly the 2300-year prophecy had pointed out to those living in the time of the end that in 1844, that heavenly judgment would start. And we realize that in the days of the seventh angel, when he begins to sound, that that event finishes in heaven and Jesus is about to come. And we know that those events take place in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. And that God's law should be understood and grasped by the people who proclaim the message. Amazing, right? So, chapter 11, chapter 11 of Revelation, verses 1 and 2. When I taught Revelation 11 last time, I did not begin with verses 1 and 2. I began with verse 3, and the reason is this. These prophecies are connected, and remember that in the original, when this was first written, it was not written with chapter headings, okay? It was not written with chapter headings, but the text of the prophecies flowed together. You had to look at the events to know, you know what it's referencing. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, the prophecy continues. It says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. Now the Bible has mentioned multiple times the temple of God in reference to heaven, right? There's one other reference to a temple of God in Scripture in the New Testament, and that is to the, the people of God, the church. And it says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right, that God dwells in you. So there's a couple of references. There's a temple uh, which is God's people on earth. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's also the temple of God which is opened in heaven where you can see the Ark of the Covenant. You can see these kinds of things. And so the Bible says right here, it says that the temple of God, says rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, a rod was obviously for measuring. A rod, a reed, okay, it's given to measure. In other words, if you have a measure, that's not just your own measure you came up with, is it? That is an official standard that you can use to measure something, and someone else can measure with that reed or rod, and they're going to get the same measurement. Because the Bible says God doesn't like an unjust balance or an unjust measure. He wants it to be precise so that you have fairness and you understand what is really the expectation, what is really the standard. So in the vision, after John's disappointment, he's told to get up and prophesy again. And he was given a reed, it says, like unto a rod, and the angel told him to rise up and to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship therein. I believe the reference here in verse 1 leans a little bit more heavily on the temple of God in reference to the church. Because it doesn't say the temple of God in heaven in this particular verse, although maybe that's still part of the discussion here. That could still be part of it. I think it's possible it could encompass both of those. But you notice that he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, what's very important about this language, the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, is that it is the precise language we find in Leviticus 16 referring to what happened on the great day of atonement which was understood as the final closing work 
for the gospel work throughout the year. The work that happened in the sanctuary, they would do it all year. They had a daily service, and at the end of the year, they, did, they had the Day of Atonement, which was a day of cleansing of the sanctuary. The language, cleansing of the sanctuary, connects with Daniel 8's prophecy, the 2300 evenings and mornings. And the Bible tells us that there would be a cleansing made for the people and for the, the temple, the holy places, and for the altar. All of that was cleansed on the Day of Atonement. The sanctuary language here is incredible. It's very connected. And so if you were to read, um, if you were to read Leviticus 16, verse 33, then you would see exactly how it mentions um, that cleansing made for each of those, for the holy, most holy place, the holy place, and then, of course, the altar and the people or the worshipers, whether that was the priests or whether that was the common person in Israel. So it was made for all of them. So the Bible says, rise up with this reed and measure the temple of God, measure the altar, and measure those who, who are worshiping therein. In other words, call everyone up to the standard. Now, what is the standard by which we are judged in the judgment? Is it not the law of God that's found in the Ark of the Covenant? It's the commandments of God, okay? Because the Bible says, fear God and keep his commandments because we're going to be judged. And so the Bible shows us that the standard in the judgment is God's holy law, God's 10 commandments. And that includes the seventh day Sabbath, doesn't it? That includes the seventh day Sabbath. And what's very incredible is that just after 1844, these people had understood the cleansing of the sanctuary message and then in 1846, just two years later, the same people caught on to the fact that, oh, wait a second, we haven't been keeping the Sabbath in honor of the Creator. The Sabbath that honors also our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who saves us by His grace through faith. We have not been honoring the Sabbath commandment because we've been keeping the papacy's commandment. We've been keeping the little horn Sabbath day instead of God's Sabbath day, the Creator's Sabbath day. And suddenly they realized that in the year 1846, and they now had the Sabbath message, the full entire law of God, and the grace of God, and the judgment hour message. Suddenly it all came together. Worship the Creator. And so the message here is to rise up. You're given this measuring rod, the law of God, the standard. You're called to measure the temple and the worshipers therein, and the altar. So everything has to come up to the standard. The Christian believers in the world must come up to the standard in these last days, right? They must come up to the standard of God's holy law. If we're going to prepare for Jesus to come, we need to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, as Revelation 14, 12 tells us. And this was the message that was all connected here in Revelation. And the last verse that we're going to be closing with is verse 2. Now I'm borrowing a minute. Okay? <laughs> all right. So verse 2, it says, But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Hmm. The forty-two months is the same as the 1260 days. Each Bible month is a 30-day month, right? It's the same as the 1260 days, which we already know that period is from 538 AD to 1798. The papacy was persecuting. The true church of Revelation 12 was being persecuted, hiding in the wilderness. The two witnesses, the word of God, were prophesying, but they were sad days for the word of God. They were prophesying in sackcloth, which is described here in chapter 11, by the way, <laughs> right? And so he tells us, you know what? 
measure all these things which are in the most holy place ministry but the the 1260 back there he says you know what the courtyard you're not inside the temple yet you're not in the heavenly zone yet remember the the temple holy place and most holy place represents what happens in heaven the work of the high priest in heaven okay the courtyard represents what happens on the earth where the cross was where the altar of sacrifice was where the lambs were sacrificed jesus was sacrificed on the earth so the bible says leave out the courtyard but measure the temple of god and the altar and the worshipers therein okay so now that you're living in the time of the the final judgment hour call people up to god's full standard of the law and you know make sure that christians hear the message make sure that everybody hears the message so they can believe and trust in Jesus and make a stand, they can make a decision. But what is being told to us in verse two is, don't go back and measure the courtyard during the 1260. In other words, in other words, don't go back during this time. Remember the Bible was prof, prof, excuse me, prophesying in sackcloth. The Bible's prophesying, those are dark days for the word of God, the 1260 years. Okay, not a lot of people had access to the scriptures. A lot of people simply had access to what they heard from the priest in the Catholic Church. Some people out in the wilderness knew the truth, right? Some people knew the truth out there, the persecuted woman in the wilderness who kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus. That's the woman in the wilderness, okay? So the prophecy is saying, look, don't go back there and measure those folks during the 1260 who were trampling the holy city. Yes, they were trampling on holy things, absolutely. God is saying, you don't need to go back there and judge them. I'll take care of that, right? God's saying, I'll take care of that. Just because Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, you know, all these great preachers of our history, they weren't keeping the seven-day Sabbath. And some people will say, hey, you know, those guys weren't keeping it. So um, why do we have to keep the Sabbath? Does it really matter? And God says, yes, it does matter. Yes, it does, because I'm calling you back to my truth, back to my commandments. You don't need to go back and judge those people before 1798 who didn't have all the light of truth, who were coming out of the darkness of the papacy. You don't need to go back there and judge them all. But you can take a stand on truth today. Now, God says, you're living in the final judgment hour, and I want you to keep every one of my commandments and worship the Creator. But you don't have to go back there and judge the folks who did not have as much light during the 1260. Does that make sense? Yes. Right? So, so God's giving us a very clear thing here because some people will be quick to say, well, look, a lot of Christians didn't keep the Sabbath throughout the dark ages. That's true. And they were trampling on holy things, unfortunately. But they, were not, they did not know. The Bible says to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin, James 4, 17. And the Bible says in those times of ignorance, God winked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. That's in Acts chapter 10. And so God calls us to repent he calls us to know the truth. They did not know as much truth back in the dark ages. They didn't have it as readily available. But now with the Bibles everywhere, now with the chance to study everywhere, the two witnesses are glorified and lifted up to heaven. Now is the time to call the whole world and the Christian churches back to the commandments of God. Does that make sense? And, and one other point here that he mentions the Gentiles will trample it underfoot. He mentions that in verse 2. The Gentiles... If you were to read Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Romans, it tells us that the Gentiles did not have the law of God. It said the Jews had the law of God and, and they're judged by the law. But it says that the Gentiles did not 
have the law of God, but they're a law unto themselves because their conscience, you know, excusing them or not, God still speaks to them, and what they do know, God holds them accountable for it. They didn't have all the writings of the law like the Jews had, okay? So when it says the Gentiles trampled it on the holy things, it tells us that during the 1260 years, because the word of God was not prophesying loud and clear for everybody, it was in sackcloth, because there was a persecuting power, and the wilderness woman was out there in the wilderness, okay? God's, God's going, he's judging a little lighter on the people back then who didn't have the chance to know clearly these truths. Doesn't that make a lot of sense when you think about it? If we have the law, we should know better. We should take a stand for it, right? Today, for any of us who are studying this series and listening to these lessons, it's time to take a stand on the truth of God's Word. It's time to take a stand for the Sabbath. It's time, because God is calling us up to the standard of the Creator, and He doesn't want us to go back into darkness from the Dark Ages or to worship the papacy who tried to change God's times and laws, who was thinking to change times and laws, and gave us their own kind of Sabbath on the pagan day of the sun, instead of the day that the Creator made holy from the very beginning, the seventh day Sabbath. So God is calling us back to that truth here in these last days. And the Advent movement and message is a prophetic message from the Lord in which all of these truths come together. And we're living in the final hours before Jesus comes, the judgment hour as it's called. Do you want to follow God and keep His commandments and be a, be a part of His movement in the last days to spread these messages to the world? This is what God is calling us to today. Let us not turn aside from God's message for today, but let us follow the Lord and do His will. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your wonderful love. Thank you so much for your incredible grace and truth that we have found here in the prophecies together. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us in your way. Teach us your way. May we live according to your righteous commandments. And may we follow Jesus, our dear, beloved Savior. We are saved by His grace through faith. Lord, may you guide us in your blessed will, that we may honor you as our Creator, and that we will prepare, or be prepared, and also help prepare the world for your soon coming. We thank you, Lord, for your blessing and for your help in all these things. Please lead us and give us all the courage to stand by your word in a world that doesn't seem to care much. We thank you for your help, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.